And we're live here at the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by John Valley, the writer and the director of Pizzagate Massacre. It's very good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Neil. It's yeah. uh, my pleasure. A movie that I couldn't even make an event with the name in the title. Oh, really? Yeah, probably because yes, you got a flag for it, I bet. Yeah. yeah, it said it was not allowed. I know. It's kind of a, just shows you how timely the movie maybe is. <laughs> that's, it. that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. Um, yeah. But I, I do think it's something that will, it's not like you made like Freedom Fries the movie. Like that would probably, you know, people be like, what does this mean? Right. You might not even know that reference, but um, no, you know, I, know, I think I know people it. will remember Pizzagate even into the future. Yeah. And I, I'm hoping that uh, eventually it becomes uh, not so taboo to use online because we'll have hopefully have a better understanding of what's going on and it's not so uh, uh, potent and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. along those lines, when you first are you know, thinking of making the movie, um, did anyone talk, try to tell you don't use that in the title? Or did you? Oh, yeah. You yeah, they did. Oh, yeah. And, and the, the movie was originally called Duncan. And we had considered putting Pizzagate into the title. Um, but yeah, I mean, most of the people that worked on the movie at the time didn't think that the concept had legs in terms of its like, you know, longevity with the subject matter. They were fine with the movie as it is because, you know, the movie is, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's kind of a fun uh, thriller action type of thing, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the subject matter, you know, a lot of people didn't think it have legs. And at the time we didn't know that, you know, I don't, QAnon wasn't a like majorly public thing like it is now. Um, although I think when we started filming the movie, I think that's when QAnon kind of made its debut on yeah. the internet. If, if my timeline's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I kind of think I, I know it was around, but I didn't really hear too much about it till after Pizzagate. That's when people started to really talk about it. Well, yeah. I mean, like Pizzagate was definitely the like beta version of what became QAnon. I think uh, they got to see the full arc of sort of what happens with it, what the media does with it after the the shooting event. And, you know, you could argue that the shooting event in D.C. was sort of like the dress rehearsal for what January 6th, you know, would end up being just on a much bigger scale. Yeah. So yeah. The re- what were some of the re- well, you said uh you didn't even know if it would have legs, but I would also think it would turn people off um, on both sides, actually, because obviously if you're making a parody of Pizzagate, a certain audience won't be into that, but they probably wouldn't be into like a movie that you're going to make to begin with. But I would also think even people that would be on the same side, they might not want to see a movie about Pizzagate, you know, that's that's uh, done as an as entertainment. Well, we certainly uh, found that out with the festivals uh, when we when we tried to start submitting it. Uh, nobody wanted to have anything to do with it, and uh, um, a lot of times it was this fear of putting too much of a spotlight on them. Uh, some festivals even thought that it was pro QAnon and pro Pizzagate. Right. Um, but in terms of actually making the movie, um, I didn't really face that with a lot of the people who ended up signing on to it. Um, it, at that point, it's more of a calculus of people have no idea who I am. Uh, there's no, you know, celebrity or marketability behind me. So, uh, th- that was the main, uh, mountain that we faced was just getting people to take us seriously at this, uh, budget level, you know, cause it, it was a, it's what's considered a micro budget movie, but it was enough money that we had to consider really like 
putting a full-fledged team behind it. And we just, we couldn't get anybody to take it seriously just because of, you know, we, we, we had nothing to bring to the table as far as uh, celebrity and, and some perception of fame. Yeah. It has a lot of production uh, value for a, a low budget movie. It looks very good. It sure does. That's Taylor Camero for sure. That's a, a, a cinematographer I've been working with for a lot of years. Uh, he and I've done, all sorts of low budget music videos together. So we kind of cut our teeth doing that. I think it was smart. Like you cut away some, from some of the violence, uh, but yet mm-hmm. it still feels violent in those scenes. Yeah. You know, I, it's, I'm not, I think in my, uh, I'm still a young dude, but I'm, I'm not 20 anymore. So I think uh, violence has become a little bit more serious to me or a little bit more sobering. And so uh, I don't, as much as I kind of, mess around in that field of movies. I don't really like to show super hyper real violence or I don't want to show people suffering. Um, so there's that kind of approach to it, but also it's, it's practically, uh, practically speaking, it's uh, you got to get clever with your scripting and you got to get clever with what you shoot because the more you let the camera linger, the more people see the seams. And so much of the name of the game with this movie was trying to jump that hurdle of making people think this was a real movie. You know, because up until this point, it's always been, oh, good job, John. That 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 was that was a good job uh, for for being a student film, or that was a good job for being a no budget movie. You know, so people are always kind of looking down on it. Uh, whereas with this, we really wanted to, you know, for better or worse, whether it was a good movie or not, we wanted people to believe that it was actually a real movie. Right. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Laugh at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. What you said there, though, about you not being 20 anymore, you know, and violence is like a real thing is dangerous. Uh, that's kind of along the lines of the movie, too, sort of about like the um, kind of like an Alex Jones type character, because I'll be honest, when I was younger, I would have found him very entertaining. Of course. Um, but the, re- the point that people really believe this stuff, it's like you can't really find it entertaining anymore. No, you, you, you really can it's at, at this age. And, and maybe that has something to do with why uh, politicians or uh, social leaders are so interested in the youth is for that very reason that this certain sense of susceptibility or, uh, you know, or, or on the good side of it, there, there's a lot of, you know, vigor and a lot of uh, passion that can be mined there. Um, but as, as the movie kind of sort of illustrates, that has a lot more to do with uh, the brains that are saturated for uh, mind control that are being uh, taken advantage of. Uh, along those lines, too, your main, we have like two main characters, but the, the main male character, um, you got to keep him uh, sympathetic on some level, but a, a, lot of ba- a lot of things about him is very unlikable. So is that, was that hard to balance? Yeah. And I would say that that's hard to balance with any project that you do. And uh, for me, it had so much to do with, uh, you know, the reality that, uh, and I talked to my girlfriend about this pretty deeply before we uh, embarked on this adventure was, you know, I, I, I warned her that, you know, this is going to be the next few years of my life and you got to be okay with, you know, me having to be quite obsessed with this. And to that tune, it was like, I had to be passionate about the project for a few years as well. I have to be able to show up to these types of things with uh, gentlemen such as yourself and and be able to speak passionately about it and care about it. Because uh, if if I made this character, you know, one dimensional and, and 
just completely unlikable, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to see the movie through. I wouldn't have been able to have championed it. Um, but then also, as far as like media production, you know, I wasn't interested in making something that was what we were already seeing every single day, whether it was the, the living documentary uh, on the, the wall-to-wall 24-hour news cycle um, or the, the, you know, the other side of it, the full cartoonish kind of depiction of it that we'd see in SNL or late night. Uh, both, I think, are uh, um, necessary. And I think a lot of, a lot of those uh, outlets um, are, are going to enjoy quite a bit of praise in future generations. I think uh, comedy and uh, news is actually going to uh, shine in this period, even though it is very much kind of being depicted as gutter um, media. But point being, as I was trying to kind of strike somewhere in the middle where uh, we are laughing at this because uh, it is funny to a lot of people yeah. um, until it's not funny. And then, so the movie kind of takes that tact where it is, it is sort of comedic, but then kind of gets pretty serious. But all along the way, I hope that you are empathizing with these characters because, uh, you know, the reality is these people are real. They're people. They're our neighbors and family members. It's weird because if this would have been like even 10 years ago or even longer than that, it, like the beginning would just be very funny people talking about the reptilians and all these, uh, you know, with the kids and, and things like because it's so ridiculous. But. I, I watch some of that stuff on YouTube just because I like to stay up to date with what people are actually talking about. And that's like exactly what they talk about. And they're very serious. And they're, it's it's mind boggling to me that people, you know, could even say it seriously and, and other people would buy into it and believe it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. They they have forever been the, sub, uh, the supporting characters of like every Richard Linklater movie, you know, like they've been there forever and they, they've always been this kind of colorful fringe of society but then uh once um uh media and and sort of these like corporations uh see where there's a dollar to be made with it uh then then you get what we have today in my opinion is it it's it supercharges it it's incentivizes it um you know there's a whole culture to uh, buy into that's not dissimilar to what you see in uh, professional sports or even uh, American uh, Christianity in terms of all of the props and the costumes and the events and the dates and the the arenas that are at your disposal as a consumer. You know, so they they just kind of saw this moment to strike, uh, much like Donald Trump saw a moment uh, to strike. Um, that, that where there's a market there, uh, there are buyers, you know, and, uh, that's kind of why I think we're seeing it so supercharged because folks like yourself or myself as as well, you know, I watched all that stuff too. I've I've always known about Alex Jones. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, it's, and I think maybe that's why when Pizzagate happened, I knew that it was more than just kind of this silly one-off event. You know, I think maybe somewhere, you know, I saw that this thing had legs and that if there was too much money poured on that fire, then, you know, it, it was going to rise. And yeah, I think QAnon is the uh, uh, the result of that for sure. Yeah, that's a big part of the, you not to give too much of the movie away, but is also the money side is, you know, yeah. 
is this someone someone believes or well if some people do but or is it the people saying it do they believe it or are they saying it to, to make money off of it correct correct um and hopefully it it doesn't take too much of a i mean i think the movie has a has a definite side that it takes in the mm-hmm. argument but um you know the idea is to sort of uh put you in the position the viewer to uh, decide for yourself whether you're left or right you know i, I you know I have to be the one to say this, but I also do truly believe it. I think it's a movie for everybody. Um, I've had some uh, Trump supporting family members even reach out to me since oh, the really? movie has come out and commending it. You know, I, th- I think, yeah, yeah. Like members of my family who, who all but sort of disowned me over this. Uh, now that they see the movie, they're like, oh, I, I see what you mean. You know, A, it, it's a fun movie because, you know, it is it is meant to be a, just a, an escapist kind of movie on uh, first and foremost, but also B, I think they saw how much care and effort I took to uh, humanize these people. Cause I think that's the, the, the team that we worked with to make this movie and the lead actor, Tynus. So who's a remarkable talent. Um, I, we all kind of had an empathy for, for the, the basket of deplorables, you know, uh, and I think the movie works because of that truth that, that, that they are human and that they are empathetic and just like us, you know, we're not that far from them, far removed from them. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird time. Uh, <laughs> like you said, you know, your family, uh, I mean, I think everyone can, can, can empathize with that. Everyone has family members that they don't talk to anymore, friends that they've stopped talking to. And of course it's i uh, I've never seen anything like it. I know, man, it's a, uh... It's pretty trippy. It, it feels like we are living in a movie or, or some kind of poorly written script. You know, it's, yeah. it's so dumb. And the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the people that are falling prey to it aren't dumb. And so that's what's so kind of that's uh, confounding about it. Yeah, because it's people I've known for years. And then all of a sudden, I was just like, I don't know how they can, you know, yeah. there's things you can just disagree on. But then there's stuff that you think would be just beyond like anyone could could actually, you know, buy into yeah, it's it's zealotry in in its purest form. Uh, Alex Jones is always a, um, a guilt. I'd say a guilty pleasure of mine. I generally found him fun to watch, but when people really started to take it like like wow, you guys actually believe all this, then it's like it just it's very mind boggling to me. Of course, yeah, I could totally see people watching him and just just to, to laugh or you know. But I think that was that's who he was until he saw his moment to blow himself up with uh, Trump. I think it's always been that he's enjoyed this kind of healthy audience of uh, late night stoners and, uh, uh, you know, alternative thinkers. But, you know, he, he saw he saw the the rising tide like Trump did, you know, by no means did those individuals create what happened. But I think they saw an opportunity and they surfed it uh, to, to a, a pretty successful degree. You know, what's that movie he's in? It's like uh, the weird animated movie. I think Keanu Reeves is in it. Yeah. Scanner Darkly. It's yeah. uh, it's uh, what I will I will say is probably the last movie that Linklater will ever uh, cast Alex Jones in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would see that. So uh, the yeah. Terry Lee character, you know, he's obvious. She's obviously inspired by uh, by Alex Jones. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it was written originally written to very much be Alex Jones. Uh, 
the the name was even similar to Alex Jones. It was it was a male. Um, and when we put out the casting call, the name of the game was trying to find the best Alex Jones impersonator. And that is, in fact, what I got, which uh, in kind of seeing that showed me that that's not what I wanted, you know, because it just felt like it was an Alex Jones impersonator, yeah. whereas all the other characters in the movie were kind of their own inventions. Um, and we didn't cast that character until about three weeks out from filming. And it ended up being this Terry Lee character. Uh, she was originally cast as a different character in the movie. Um, and I, I just adore her as an actor and she's, she's one of my favorite actors on the planet. And um, it was her idea to audition for it. Cause I reached out to her and said, I can't find anybody. Do you know anybody? Is there anybody you think would fit for this? She gave me some great options, but also said, I, I would like to read for it. And, you know, I was sort of, uh, at my wits end and said, absolutely. Yeah. Send me something. And what you see in the movie is what she sent to me in this like 90 second audition and just blew me away. I was able to rewrite the character top to bottom to fit her voice. Um, and I think it's uh, in many ways, sort of what makes the movie timeless, hopefully, you know, uh, time will tell, but uh there was something about her being that antagonist character that kind of galvanized the whole movie, I think, and made it its own, uh, its own organism, as opposed to some kind of reflection of the immediate. I think it's something that really pulled it together to be something that will be relevant uh, decades from now, hopefully. Mm -hmm. It's a great performance. And um, yeah, uh, the character, you know, she plays it with conviction and it, uh, the character doesn't crack, which I think is important uh, for the movie to work. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, she she approached it technically as if uh, uh, speaking to the commitment, she approached it as if she believed everything she was saying. And although the script or some of the other characters in the movie may argue against that notion, I think it played into her performance ultimately in so insofar as like she really committed, she really believed this. Um, and I think it puts a really nice kind of like mystery, like an edge of mystery to the end of the movie, as far as like what is going on and what is reality, you know, it, uh, which thematically plays into the whole conspiracy theorist thing, you know, like you, you could go into this movie, a bleeding heart liberal and have, uh, all of confidence in the world as far as what you think the world is. But when you get in this movie, it, it does, it does force you to reconsider what you think is real and, and which conspiracy theories are reality versus which aren't. Yeah. There's always a thing about the conspiracy theories is if they're coming from someone who you think like is, is, you know, saying all this crazy stuff. What if one of the, what if one of the things they say is real and you would just totally, you know, not buy it because it's coming from this person. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and that's the whole, I think that's why conspiracy theories work so well is because they're self-sealing. Uh, they use just enough elements of reality and just enough undeniable uh, elements that kind of undergird the fantasy and, and kind of give you uh, breadcrumbs to follow and therefore kind of uh, they are a call to action. You know, it's not something that's rooted in uh, uh, the past or something for us to kind of, you know, just simply ruminate on. 
uh, which is what mostly like history is or what mostly religion is. Although with religion, it does sort of have this promise of a second coming of Christ that that same kind of human desire that we have for like having a mission or having purpose, having identity, uh, like one begets the other. Uh, I think conspiracy theories sort of live and die by that, how much they kind of create this call to action. And with QAnon and Pizzagate, it's always about these dates that are coming up. Well, this thing's going to happen at this time on this day. You know, so it triggers that part of the brain that we are so um, already trained to act on, which is dates and schedules and calendars. You know, that's like the whole, uh, that's how we function. That's how we progress is by planning and sort of executing on those plans, right? Mm. So that then feeds that's the always been going years. on. I remember when I was a kid that would, you know, night, whatever they would say, 94 or something, the world was going to end, and then right that would pass, and then it would be 2000 or what you know, 2000. Whatever. That's yeah. the big one, yeah. That's the big one that we can all like. I think most people can sort of admit to that's the big conspiracy theory that we all fell prey to, yeah, or, or we're curious about, you know, uh, conspiracy c- curious. <laughs> <laughs> So when you were writing it, did you know you'd play Philip or how did, how did it come about that you, you, you took over the role? No, dude. Um, I did not want to be in this movie. I, I oftentimes I I'm an actor by trade. Uh, it's one of my many professions. And so it's, it is a, an arrow I have in my quiver, but it's not at all what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to just really focus on the work behind the camera, but, um, it's one of those things where, uh, casting is a tricky beast, it's not so much who does the best job uh, singularly. It's kind of who fits next to the protagonist the best. And I think because I wrote the character for this particular actor and because he and I worked on pre-production so, so much together um, that he, he and I became this kind of one brain. You know, there were times on set where actors or technicians could almost ask Tynus, hey, what are we doing next? Or what, what's what's going to happen with the rest of the day or what's going on. And he could almost answer those questions because he was so closely tied in with the production. Um, so when we couldn't find the right energy to match Tynus, we just kind of at the last minute, I was the last person to tape. Uh, and I, I stood up there with him and, and did the lines with him back and forth. I had them memorized because I'd been watching so many auditions, uh, great auditions at that. And it was kind of a, you know, no brainer situation. We just saw kind of how I could flow with him and set him up to be really successful in the scenes. And I, I knew that it was me then, and that I had to do it. Uh, what I didn't anticipate was just how much that character would be on screen because when Terry Lee is not on screen, the, the true antagonist of the movie, the Darth Vader, um, I was kind of then the stand-in antagonist, the, the character Philip, a.k.a. Sidethorn. And I, I had no idea how much uh, time that character was on screen until I built the schedule and until it was too late to back out. Uh, and so it was just this mad rush of trying to learn those lines the night before the shoot. I had no time to really like build the character beyond this kind of basic Southern East, you know, East Texas accent and just saying the right words at the right speed. Um, it, it feels like it could have been one of the more fun characters, like one of the most fun characters I could have ever played as an actor. But because my primary responsibility was making the movie, it was yeah. just 
complete pain in the ass. <laughs> you had a sweet mustache. I did have a sweet mustache in it uh, with, with the aid of a little bit of makeup to fill oh, okay. in the uh, I thought maybe you grew it overnight for the role or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's, my, that's the uh, bane of my existence. I can't grow any facial hair without having at least three months to do so. <laughs> Fair um, and, and a nice full packet of makeup to put in if I'm going to be on camera. Because those lights will like see right through it. <laughs> Alan Postscript says, uh, I call myself a conspiracy enthusiast. Yeah. And also, he, um, okay. they also uh, I mentioned Duncan earlier. I think I, I did see that when I first posted it, that a, a few people said that they had followed the movie since it was called Duncan. Yep. Yeah. The, the changing to Pizzagate Massacre only happened this year, you know, like a few months ago. Um, which I think was a wise decision on the distributors part. Uh, our international distributors knew, uh, you know, they found the movie through the horror circuit and, and it was horror audiences that kind of saved this movie from obscurity and a horror producer and uh, director in his own right, Aaron B. Kuntz of uh, Paper Street Pictures saw the movie and kind of knew what we needed to do with it. It's not a horror movie on the surface, but it certainly has a spirit of one. Um, and so in trying to market this thing, they, they knew that we had to change the title, you know, and, uh, at that point in the game, the movie had been kind of turned down so much that I was ready to do anything. And so the notion of changing the title to something a little bit more electric and a little bit more pulpy, uh, was no skin off my back. I was just happy that people actually wanted to see it. Yeah. And now in retrospect, I think it's an apt title. I think it really works for many reasons. Yeah. That's why I personally like festivals so much is there's a lot of movies that don't like fall into one particular genre or you know, mm -hmm. they could be multiple genres. And I know sometimes people, you know, especially like distributors don't want that. They want it to be a specific thing, but I, I like something oh, yeah. that doesn't, uh, I'm not a stickler for genre to begin with. I know some people are, you know, they, they'll fight over, you know, the predator. Is it a horror movie or sci-fi? And I don't know why that stuff even matters to be honest. No, I, I don't think it does either. But like the, the thing is, is that with the festival, that means that you have already bought the ticket. Right. So you're willing to take the ride, but the, the vast majority of people don't go to film festivals and it is, it is kind of a sobering reality when you realize how much that does play into whether people see your movie or not. Because I think most people, you know, they're passively choosing their, their media diet and they will watch what is put in front of them. But how they get to that exhibition is largely dependent on their consumer behavior. And so it's like, are you somebody who... Uh, really does have that particular genre uh, appetite. And so you're going to subscribe to Shudder right. or are you somebody who's kind of like, eh, whatever I've heard about Netflix, I'll just subscribe to the easy one. Right. And so it, it, it's, you know, there's so many layers to that onion where I learned quite a bit of the, the business side of things where it's like being very particular and very sharp with, with the genre of, of your movie Um regardless of what it genre it is um, just being very particular about it and being cognizant of that choice is super important to how that movie ultimately gets to people, you know, cause people will watch it and they'll know a good movie when they see it. It's not as though they don't know how to watch a movie, but they have to find it first, especially since there are so Correct. many movies out there. 
Correct. Yeah. So you can get away with that with festivals because anybody who's at the festival has already bought the ticket and they want that experience consciously or subconsciously. They want that. Yeah. yeah. Not- I understand not everyone's like me as far as movies. <laughs> I, and I go to the movies and watch pretty much every, every movie that comes out. So. Right. Which is so freeing. I, you know, I, I've ever since becoming more entrenched in filmmaking, I, I realize how much that, that stuff goes out the window. And when somebody I always try to let other people pick the movie because I kind of don't care what it is. You know, I can kind of watch any movie, whether it's a rom-com or a, you know, like super far, like deep horror film, you know, and you can get something out of it for sure. Cause they all distill down to uh, human desire and, you know, longing and then all that kind of, you know, uh, metaphysical stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I yeah. go see the big tentpole Spider-Man movies, and then I'll go yeah. see them. You know, I saw Wolf the other week, which had a you know a very limited run, but it was a really good movie. So. I really want to see that. I, I've seen the trailer, and it looks pretty dope. But yeah, I, I, haven't I really liked it, it. It's definitely not going to be for everybody, but uh, usually I like those kind of movies that aren't for everybody. So Yeah, yeah, they're different. They're doing something uh, new, usually. Yeah. So, um, did you do the the festivals? Uh, during, was it during COVID, or did you have it out uh, before? A little bit of both. Um, we had the movie ready. We were submitting to festivals in the spring of 2019 um, because I thought that this subject matter was so ripe and that it was about to blow up. And so, the name of the game was shoot it as quick as possible, get it made, finish it, and let's get it into festivals before somebody else does because we knew somebody else was going to get to this subject matter and we knew that we would be dwarfed by them because we didn't have stars or a huge marketing spend. So I got the movie out real fast. And so I spent about a year of uh, rejections pre COVID and then about another eight, nine months of rejections during COVID. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, you know, I, I don't know if COVID had what, what COVID had to do with it, if anything, but um, we certainly had our, um, our opportunity, our window to see if festivals wanted us and they didn't. Um, and, you know, learned a lot about that. I, I have my suspicions as to why it didn't get selected, but um, yeah, it was rough. It was, it was pretty rough. I, I had a dark night of the soul uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, is, what are your thoughts on why uh, a lot of the festivals didn't pick it up? Because it's it's a it's a double edged sword. I think festivals um, they need to put asses in seats, mm-hmm. and it is a business too. And uh, as much as people don't want to admit it, a lot of times why they will watch something is because they were told to, and who tells them is uh, paramount. Um, and who gets to tell you is paramount and who gets to tell you are people that usually have the financial wherewithal to do so. And that usually requires celebrity that usually requires some degree of fame or notoriety. Um, and, and, uh, you know, when I am virtually a nobody with no major stars in my movie, um, it doesn't matter how well it's technically executed. If there's not something that they can like really sell on, on a a social media account or the pamphlet of the festival uh, booklet itself, it puts them in a tough position. So I empathize with that. I understand that. Um, But there's also kind of the, 
unfortunate side to it too, where it's like, you, you kind of realize how much we live and die by celebrity. And uh, the, the movie certainly took its bruises from that. Um, but, you know, it's also a weird movie. It's a weird subject material. Uh, what admission we did get from uh, these rejection letters were often filled with uh, details like, like I said earlier, they thought it was pro Pizzagate or pro QAnon and they didn't want to see it. Um, one of the major festivals that is, uh, takes place here in Austin uh, told us that you made us empathize with a character that we shouldn't be empathizing with. And so y- you can see the, how they're trying to sculpt their um, uh, programming. They, they, they want it to satisfy maybe some, you know, uh, trend of where we're at as far as political correctness. And uh, like I said, although the movie does take a definite stance as to whether it believes in this uh, culture or not, which it does not, um, it does not condone this. Um, it does ask you to empathize with these people. And I think the only reason that I'm able to get you to empathize with these people is because they are empathetic. It's not some like falsehood that I'm creating. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, telling a lie. I think uh, so in that, in that, that was frustrating to watch these people who they themselves were frustrated with how they felt about the movie and frustrated with maybe some preconceived notions that they um, allow themselves to sleep at night with is that the, these are the basket of deplorables and any argument uh, against that is um, counterintuitive to my identity. And so they themselves, like so many of these people who are trapped in the right uh, are victims of identity politics and, and are willing uh, participants in that uh, seduction of identity politics. And so the movie got beat up pretty hard in the festival circuits, but I don't think it was because of uh, how it was technically rendered. I mean, that, oh, that I would go to the mats yeah. with, you know, I mean, yeah. the people that worked on this movie, the people who made the movie, the, the cinematographers, our camera department, our, our G&E department, the, 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 the cast, I mean, like, that's as, like, as good as you can do with the resources that they were given. So uh, uh, the festivals that did play, did you get to see it with, with an audience? No, because by the time that we got into festivals, it was virtual probably. <laughs> yeah. It was all virtual, you know, cause I, I was ready to release the movie by myself um, because it would have been criminal just to let it sit on a shelf any longer. So I, I started putting out material and getting ready to release it myself. And then uh, that's when it got noticed by paper street pictures and that's when they turned me on to this idea of being a little bit more deliberate about the festivals I was targeting, which were horror festivals. And uh, at that point, you know, yeah, like you said, it's virtual. So I just get to kind of view from the outside and field whatever social media buzz we were getting, which was awesome to see. Mm-hmm. And it was really rewarding because I'd, I'd hear from people in the UK reaching out to me, you know, and, and people who are seeing the movie and, you know, talking about it on other podcasts and stuff. And, uh, so it was still very rewarding and I still got to feel that kind of audience love. I just didn't get, go to the parties where I'm treated like a rock star. Right. No, I mean, <laughs> um, I don't need that. Yeah. I mean, we do, I, um, with the pandemic, I started doing our own virtual, uh, short festival, um, 
I think before the a lot of them popped up, I think I originated. No, I'm just kidding. But the <laughs> um, but it, it's fun. But uh, it's not the same as going to a, to a festival and watching a movie in the theater with a bunch of people, you know, like minded people. And then honestly, I would say that to the after parties are the best part because the filmmakers and you know everyone's basically the same. You get to hang out and then talk with everybody. I agree with you. I think that is kind of the like the big reward of festivals. But the thing that I really like about virtual festivals is that it circumnavigates that whole. Uh, it's not just in this one area, right? And you don't have to like. You're not so beholden to the cost, and uh, although it's not an easy thing to pull off, the overhead immediately drops. You don't have to, you're not having to like pay for uh, space and, and rentals and all this stuff. And so maybe that did hopefully open the floodgates a little bit more to movies that would have otherwise been cast aside that are great movies, but because they can't fill seats, uh, they're not going to show at festivals and, and uh, essentially exist in obscurity. Mm-hmm. I, there, there's an argument to be made that maybe the whole virtual apparatus and COVID actually is what saved my movie because I certainly was not uh, about to get put, put up on a big 40 foot screen somewhere in a major city, you know, while there's celebrities showing up at other screenings. Nobody's going to want to go see that movie. I get that. Nobody wants to spend their spring break buying an overpriced ticket to fly across the country to go see a bunch of nobodies. You know, they want to be able to uh, do their social media post where, there's a blurry Bill Murray in the background because, you know, Wes Anderson's showing his new movie, right. you know, even though he's got distribution and he's going to be showing at a couple thousand screens, you know, they still will take up a slot at one of these <laughs> right, festivals. Right. Yeah. That's what I, I personally do like this uh, somewhat smaller festivals. Um, yeah. Same. There's a community feel to them too. Like uh, my, my local in Boston underground film festival, a lot of the same people show up. Um, and there's something about that, you know, it's, uh, it's just, a, it's a nice time and you get, you can meet everyone easier. And there's, Absolutely. I also like them when there's one screen as opposed to multiple screens. If there's all one screen, you're all watching the same movies together. There's, I don't know. There's something, uh, nice. About Absolutely. That. Oh, I totally agree with it. And, and people who go to those, they know that they're going to the smaller ones and they, they don't want to feel like they've wasted their time. So they're, they are subconsciously more invested in the material. And if the material is there to meet that expectation, then you get really happy audiences and creators. And it creates this like really cool environment that I think dissipates the bigger a festival gets. The more a festival relies on high-end celebrity and high-end production, uh, the more it kind of distills down to nothingness. You know, there's no personal investment. Yeah. What's the one in London, right? Uh, it's either for always going fright fest and fright mayor fright fest fright, fright fest like yeah thing. yeah and uh it was it was a great experience but there's like a dozen you know theater screens going on at the same time so one thing you can't even watch all the movies and um you know it, it's all split up so you're not watching them together i don't know it's uh it's a totally different experience i think so too and i think they're gonna they're they're gaining more relevance uh, i i i think because of that democratization of Exposure, you know, because of the internet, like now all of a sudden I can post about a small festival that nobody has ever heard about, but there, there is an audience there that like engaged with it. And so, you know, I'd be posting out these festivals that are small, but getting this huge response 
from anybody watching. And it's as though like, man, I, this is probably no more than I would have gotten at South by Southwest or uh, uh, Slam Dance or Sundance and, you know, and all that stuff. So there's, there is an interesting feature ahead for these kind of more boutique uh, niche festivals, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah, my friend runs a Sick and Wrong Festival. And by the name, you know, it's a very, uh, very uh, distinctive uh, set of films that play there. But, you know, oh, yeah, I've heard of that festival for sure. I know all yeah. about that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was uh, I was a judge on their seven. What is it? The uh, four, I don't know if it's 48 or 72 hour uh, debacle. So they had three to everyone had three days to make the movies. And um, it was uh, there was a lot a lot of puke and 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 dicks, which is fine. But there was a little more than I needed to see. There's some puke and dicks in my movie. You know? <laughs> there I, is I, actually now you mention it. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I I get I get why that is uh, cinematically uh, right. Potent. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Uh, this is my it's it was, the scene. I don't want to you know spoil the movie, but he says he's going to expose his balls, but it's really exposing his dick. And I was like, it's mostly dick. I, yeah. I will cop to that. <laughs> uh, it was supposed to be a big ball sack, but it's mostly dick. Um, that prop was. Is, uh, which it was a prop. Uh, sorry if I'm <laughs> disappointing anybody, but when you see the movie, it is a prop. Interview is um, over. Yeah. <laughs> it, the guy who made that already had it prefabbed. So uh, there wasn't much room to dig uh, <laughs> in the other end. I understand. I understand. It works. Uh, yeah. yeah, it works. It works. Yeah. Where did you film it? All in Austin. Um, the movie takes place in Austin and Waco, but we faked Waco. Uh, we, we shot in the more uh, industrial areas of Austin where there aren't a lot of skyscrapers for the Waco stuff. But then all of the Austin stuff takes place in Austin proper. Um, so it, it's Austin's a small enough town that you can move a low budget production around to all of its far flung corners. You know, you can get country settings pretty quickly. And then within a day, you can be in downtown Austin where there's 30 skyscrapers at your disposal. So it's a very uh, uh, film-worthy city in, in, in that capacity. Um, and, you know, I wrote, I wrote the script to fit that as well. At this level, everything I write is all, you know, imbued with practicality. I, I, don't, I don't know how to write uh, without thinking about a budget and without thinking about how, how the army is going to move from point A to point B anymore. You know, so that's where everyone's moving now too. all those, uh, all those people. Yes. Yeah. We're feeling it. <laughs> so you're in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. Based here in Austin. I've been here for about 13 years, uh, moved here right after uh, college. And, you know, there's been a few moments where I almost left uh, bleak moments uh, where nothing was happening. And I thought I had to go roll the dice somewhere else. A um, couple moments where I almost moved to LA and I love LA and I love New York. I was, I was in New York for a second, but um, yeah, just by, by the, uh, by fate, I am still here. Uh, I understand there's a pretty good film community in Austin. There is, there's a lot of really, really intelligent and uh, gritty uh uh, crews at, at, at our disposal. Um, but the state government does everything in its power to sort of disincentivize that and break it down because uh, it's, it's politically advantageous to them, even though financially on the books, um, there, there is no argument to be made other than a positive for bringing more film to Texas. 
but it's easier to put on a bumper sticker. Don't California my Texas. And these uh, rich Republicans aren't really concerned with um, uh, financially uh, helping out its people because they themselves are already financially set most of the time. And so it's easier to stay in power if they say, no, the more movies we shoot here, uh, the gayer Texas becomes, the more liberal it becomes, the more, uh, you know, whatever pejorative you can think of about uh, movies. You know, it's very easy to glom on a political uh, bent to the film scene, even though on paper, mathematically, it it is... it's nothing but beneficial to any state for that matter. If any state in uh, these United States w- would make it build more of a, a corporate incentive and, and or, or capitalistic incentive for movies to come there, they would because mm-hmm. the name of the game for film production is about how do you pinch the dollar. And so if you make it incent, uh, if, you, if you create an incentive, then you're going to get uh, uh, thousands and thousands of workers you know, I mean, That's this tiny, in Georgia, yeah, Atlanta. Exactly. Exactly. Every time it happens, it every every example that is outside of New York, Chicago, or LA, it's always this big financial boon until someone fucks it up. And uh, typically, it's some politician who's able to kind of like spin it so that it looks like uh, s- some kind of overt liberalism of uh, an already or, or, or typically a conservative. Um, state, Iowa, Texas, New Mexico, Georgia. Those are all kind of like red states outside of their um, their the, the businesses that kind of uh, uh, plant roots there. You know, kind of like superficially speaking, they're red, but the 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 business and corporate kind of roots are. You know, they they can they can easily accept uh, Hollywood and, and the arts, you know, because it's all about just turning money, you know, and I'm very proud that like the, all of the money that we spent on this movie went right back into the film scene. The hundred plus people that we employed for this movie all live here or in the surrounding areas. So that money immediately goes back into the, the region and not just some like, uh, Bit bigger or out of state entity, which is what you see a lot of times with uh, giant cash dumps um, outside of the film industry too. A lot of times, like it's people who are making money outside of the state, and therefore the money leaves the state. Whereas if you incentivize people to come here, and if you incentivize people to stay here, then that money can stay here and and spread out and make everybody win. You know, but that's uh, you can't put that on a bumper sticker. Right. Unfortunately, you said you feel the people coming there, you know, like Joe Rogan moved there and, and uh, lots of people. Um, How, what effect does that have? I mean, it pisses people off. Uh, It creates um, opportunities for people who maybe don't deserve it and takes opportunity away from people who have been here for a while. Um, you know, without being able to like pull a lot of really like hard details out, it's, it's doing a weird thing to the comedy scene. Um, So many comedians move there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's emboldening a, an angle of the comedy scene that has no business being emboldened this kind of uh, anti-woke comedy, which is completely bullshit. 
you know, like uh, comedy has always been against the grain. Comedy has always been uh, uh, anti-woke from a certain point of view. Yeah. Otherwise, so I mean, the, what is the, what do you, what is the comedy if not, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and it's just, it's creating a, uh, a safe space for lazy comedians to do lazy work that maybe makes people in the moment feel good, but I don't think it's going to create any type of lasting community. I think this uh, anti-woke community and this kind of anti-woke uh, sect of, of comedy clubs in Austin is as uh, thin as paper. And I think it's going to go away and all of the people that are investing in it are going to just move on to something else. Whereas those who can survive it in spite of it, will have futures and they will be sort of the, the arbiters of where comedy goes in, in Austin, which is kind of like, you know, it's, it was surprising to find Austin is kind of a cool comedy scene. Uh, the, the moon tower comedy tour thing happens here. And, and, you know, there, there are very funny people that live here and it is a town that sort of encourages out of the box thinking. So, and at one point was affordable to live at, uh, live, but, um, I don't know, you know, uh, at the same time that I can say that, I can also say, I don't think Joe Rogan's the problem. I think we can't lose sight of our ability to discern what is good and what isn't. And I think, you know, Joe Rogan should be able to have his show and he should be able to have his opinions. We, it's incumbent on us as the listeners to not lose sight of uh, being able to discern, uh, whether we're taking medical advice from uh, the <laughs> yeah, host yeah. of Fear Factor or not. Right. That's what I kind of bring up a, a lot. And, you know, people will get mad. But I mean, it's totally, you know, he's entertaining guys, a lot of great guests and stuff. But that doesn't mean you should, like exactly said, he doesn't mean you should take medical advice or, you know, how yeah. to live your life. Or anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I like his show because uh, he can get Neil deGrasse Tyson to come and, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe get high and, and talk right. for like three hours. Yeah. yeah. You, you don't get, or he can get like fucking Bernie Sanders to come and do that, to talk for three hours uninterrupted. You know, like that's, that's a cool space that is carved out because of his, the empire that he has created for himself and the money that comes into that business that allows for a space for somebody like Bernie Sanders to have three hours to talk uninterrupted. Now, the problem is, is when people hear like, Joe Rogan talking about uh, his opinions on uh, things like uh, vaccines. You know, mm -hmm. the problem is, is those people not being able to discern that, you know, these are just opinions. And, you know, this like pains my progressive bones to say that like Joe Rogan is very uh, forward about that. He, he says, don't listen to me. Oh, yeah. No, he I'm even says like, I'm a dumb guy, you know, yes. things like that. Yeah. Yes. And that's why I can listen to him uh, and, and not feel as though my like progressive cred is like going out the window, you know, like it's, he's just a guy, you know, we should be concerned about millions of people who think he's a fucking doctor. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And uh, sort of like what, with your movie, how you make the, uh, you know, the, the one guy is uh, sympathetic and not, not that I'm saying Joe Rogan's uh, sympathetic, but I, he also does get a bad rap. Sometimes people say things about him that aren't true. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I've fallen prey to that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll hear things that uh, I think 
for the most part, at one point in time, CNN was like a good media place. Uh, I think that's in question these days, but like, uh, you know, I could, I, I can, I can point out times where I heard something on CNN, some shit about Joe Rogan. And I thought, Oh, that asshole. And then when you actually look into it and, and see right. what he has to say about it, or actually see the interview that they're pulling from, it's the complete opposite. It's it's totally taken out of context. Even the, and, the big COVID thing was not exactly what he he listed. Or all these things he took and, and right? ivermectin was one of the things, but he didn't say like I just took that. I, I took. He even said like a laundry list of things that he took. And then it yes. was reported that he just like oh I, I, that he took horse dewormer, and it wasn't exactly what he said. Correct. It was not. And 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 I love that you know he he uh, I can't remember. He had on Sanjay Gupta recently, I think, yeah. and, and kind of pressed him on that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. good, good. Mm-hmm. You know, put that guy under under fire a little bit. You know, not that I think that Sanjay Gupta, like, that's the thing that people don't understand about media. And Joe Rogan knows better is that, like, he used Sanjay Gupta as a as a target saying, like, you don't think that your network lies. Why did your network lie? Mm-hmm. As if Sanjay Gupta had any bearing right, on like, what the right, network like is going to put out. Yeah, yeah. No, these like these individual hosts uh, on on these networks are just like pieces, tiny little pieces of the puzzle. He Sanjay Gupta has no idea what's going on or the decisions that are being made any more than you do. You know, he's there like he he's probably not even able to keep track of his own schedule, let alone what the like long term political uh, calculus is of the network writ large. You know, and so in, in, in that same by that same token, we need to then also like show a little bit more empathy. I don't know, like again, like it sounds like I don't want to sympathize or right. empathize. I mean, he's like, yeah, the rich one mind. of the richest the richest podcast in the world and everything. Correct. But yeah, yeah. But but kind of like, you know, principally speaking, it's like he's not the enemy. Right. You know? right. Yeah. And and in fact is maybe more beneficial to us to have out there as as a voice than to take away. I think maybe that's old school thinking or something, this notion of free speech, but it's like, I think he should be able to have his show, Mm -hmm. our, our, our personal education and our personal uh, responsibility, you know, separate, you know, uh, Hey, I I like to watch this or I enjoy this guy, but that doesn't mean, you know, he's an expert on everything in the world. Right. Right. Yeah. Right there with you on that. Yeah. And as a guilty pleasure, I enjoy, uh, uh, Alex Jones talk about Bohemian Grove on. on uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, very, he's a funny yeah. guy. He is. He's yeah. a fun, like I, I have, I have friends. So I'm in Austin, which is where Austin or uh, Alex Jones is based, and I have friends that work with him. I have friends that have like worked on documentaries with him, and I hear nothing but like really fun things about him. He's he's a fucking weirdo, and he says oh, yeah, weird yeah. stuff, but like. By all accounts, he's like a super funny guy, and like you I know, think you could tell it when you when you. I mean, there are even things he does that well, he's an interesting character, almost you know, much like your character in the movie is. You don't know how much of it is. Obviously, some of it is theatrical, and and then yeah. part of me is like, if he didn't, if if he was just saying all these things that he didn't believe at all, I don't know if if you could just sit there and talk like for four hours about it. Well, I, yeah, I guess maybe, maybe that, that's right. It's like, I think it's an interesting character. Yeah. 
I think he knows better. And I think what he, he is in service to is this greater question of, should we question the government? Should we question the powers that be? And the answer to that is, I think, a resounding yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is the deal that he makes with himself that he's like, I'll, I'll go off on this Pizzagate stuff knowing fe- f- you know, well and good that it's bullshit and that I don't have the evidence to support this, but it's in service to something that is kind of universally uh, uh, positive, I think, which is uh, to always keep a healthy degree of dissent you know, in a healthy degree of civil disobedience, because you never know when you are in the midst of a fascist overthrow, which is so funny because like that has been his kind of ethos for 30, 40 years. And yet now he finds himself in bed with the very people who are kind of uh, the closest to uh, turning America into a fascist state, Mm -hmm. you know, which is so, you know, such an interesting Shakes almost like Shakespearean level uh, twist of the knife that this like libertarian kind of anti-government guy is now like the the voice of the fascist movement of of America. It's it's so weird, you know. He himself would not say that, of course, but that isn't what sells dick pills. That isn't what sells, uh, you know, survival uh, gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan uh, wants to know: uh, Will you do a sequel? If there's money, <laughs> you know, I, 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 blew, I blew my life savings on this movie. And uh, uh, I think anybody who writes original work like this knows that there's three or four other scripts that could spawn out of it. It, it could have been three or four other movies. Um, and I'm not so up my own ass that I, I, I want to move on. Um, I have prequel ideas. I have sequel ideas. I have universe, uh, multiverse uh, ideas for this movie. Um, but this movie was so damn hard to sell and was so damn hard to get people to get behind that. I don't know if that would ever be useful, uh, in the immediate, but you know, maybe if I make some money for some people down the road, that'll give me the runway to make, uh, extended universes of this because yeah, the the character is, I think that dense, you could do so much with, and I, and I, you know, I like the idea of, you know, moving outside of the window of time that this movie takes place in, which is about like a 48 hour, 72 hour kind of window of time. Um, there's so much more you could do beyond it and so much more you could do before it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be fun. That would be super fun. We had a blast making this movie, despite the people who are trying to sabotage us. The, you know, it was a blast. Uh, Alan also wants to know if, if not, uh, do you have anything in the works right now? I do. Uh, I've just been writing like crazy ever since. And uh, one of the great rewards to come out of this process was uh, um, being reminded how cool horror movies are and how cool horror audiences are. Um, I have been a like devout fan of horror as a genre. It's, it's uh, arguably what got me into making movies to begin with. Um, but when you kind of get into this world of trying to make a living, making it, you, you, the only thing you're thinking about is how do I get that, the patina of Sundance or that, like, you know, that kind of anointing from the industry. And so you don't think about it as readily as you, as you should, you kind of think about what, what do people, you you try to guess what people want to see. You try to guess what's going to get you like uh, accolades and when that got thrown in my face, embarrassingly so, 
Um, I kind of got broken down. My ego got broken down. And then this uh, horror audience came in and sort of reminded me of why I got into making movies to begin with. So all of that philosophical blah, blah, blah aside um, to answer the question. Yes. I have like a few horror films that I'm cooking a few that are already on paper and ready to go. Um, one in particular that I'm very interested in is sort of this like Cronenberg-y kind of Frankenstein story. Oh, interesting. I'm a yeah, big Frankenstein yeah. fan. So. It's, uh, I'm finding to be quite the well of material to draw from. It's, it's incredible. I've always liked it. It's uh, a movie my dad showed me when I was super young. Um, and it was kind of what he thought, you know, was the movie that scared him the most as a kid, that original Frankenstein. And it really stuck with me as a kid. Um, it's fascinating. And, it, and it, it, it's the bones of what makes horror movies work, where it's, it literally is that kind of case study for the horror movies. Uh, the good ones are never about the monster. You know, they're, they're always about the, uh, the flawed human at the wheel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the the doctor I think is overlooked as one of the great horror villains. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm not super familiar with the Hammer uh, Frankenstein. I'm not series. either, and I, I, my brother's a big fan of all. The, I, I should definitely uh, try to check them out because I've not watched many of them. Same, and I, and I think that they they go into that a little bit more. I think they. I was listening to some interview with Tarantino, and uh, he, uh, he was on Eli Roth's History of Horror show. And he, he was describing that, how it's as though the Hammer films sort of go out of their way to weaken the monster and make him more pathetic to give more real estate to the doctor, who is the true monster. Mm-hmm. And they kind of make him more sinister and more antagonistic. And it kind of made me want to see them, especially now that I'm kind of writing in this field. I probably should make sure that whatever I'm stealing from is well hidden and that <laughs> right. I'm not accidentally uh, showing my cards. So right, I should right. see all the Frankenstein movies, yes. but the play is great. Um, they show it every yeah. Halloween with, um, I forget the, there's two huge actors, but, um, uh, well, the one guy's very, well, both of them are pretty big, but it's cool. Cause, uh, the, Harry Potter did it, I think. Um, well, the, I'm are you talking about like an older one? No. Well, they did it a few years ago and they actually just, they, they'll play it in the theater. Um, like a, a, a recording yeah. of it. Wasn't it Daniel Radcliffe or something? I think so. It's uh, know, maybe I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the, there, there was a new move, a new Frankenstein. Yeah, that movie. was, um, that's something different. Yeah. I should edit this. <laughs> you could edit this and then uh, we could take some time to Google it really quick. Yeah. I'm cheating here and looking it up on IMDb. Uh, oh, you know, I'm, I'm into that. I think, I think we've got these tools yeah, that are Benedict disposal. Cumberbatch. There you go. Yeah. And uh, Johnny Lee Miller and it's uh, directed by Danny Boyle, but it's awesome. If you ever get a chance to uh, see it and it's cool. Cause the two main characters will flip. I've seen both versions because the, the play is really about they're kind of the same character, like the different side of the coin. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, you could see two different ones, one where he played, where the one guy plays the doctor and the other guy plays the monster and vice versa. Yeah. It's like that, uh, that Sam Shepard play true West, where that's kind of a, to be able to swap the roles night to night is sort of the, uh, the bigger gimmick to it outside of just a wonderfully written play. You know, I think, uh, there was a production of like John C. Riley and, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman did true West. Yeah. Which would have been an outs- like yeah, incredible to see both, that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
But yeah, this has never been released like a like a physical thing. I think it's you just on the Halloween they show it. Uh, you got to catch it. Yeah, yeah. I think during COVID they did a free. Um, they showed it on YouTube just for like a, a few days, but it's Dark. hard to find them. Yeah, yeah. Plays are they? They have this weird uh, thing about them where they they kind of just get put into a archive or, or a vault and they don't get seen. You know, I, which I understand. I guess in theory, but it's not as though plays are so uh, healthy these days that they, that they can right. do yeah, that. Especially now. Just, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. But uh, so what would you say? So um, besides Frankenstein, like your favorite horror films, man, I mean, my, my favorite horror film kind of like is the is Texas chainsaw massacre. Uh, I, I really like that kind of stuff that where, um, it's closer to reality and, and not to like celebrate it by any means, but the, the stuff that has more to do with like our, you know, folly is more interesting to me. And I think that's why I like slasher films a lot, because a lot of times you do have that opportunity before they start getting too supernatural. It does feel like it is a, a person that is yeah. wielding the weapon. The that's knife. why I like the first four uh, Jason movies better. Before, well, even the fifth one's pretty good, I think. But yeah, once you get resurrected by, uh, by Horshack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, I like those movies quite a bit. But that said, uh, I also kind of worship at the altar of The Shining. No, you yeah. know? Um, I don't know if it's something that I just, as a maker, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around supernatural stuff. I, it's, I'm very much rooted in like, just the physical body and how it moves, you know, steps from A to B things that are a little bit more ethereal and kind of abstract, like supernatural stuff sort of escape my ability to understand how does somebody do that? How do you, how do you kind of keep that consistent? Um, but as a viewer and as a, as, as a watcher, I, I love the shining. I yeah. think it's kind of, uh, well, it's still a lot about the character. It's kind of uh, cause they're preying on his, um, his alcoholism. So in a way you could even see it as maybe not even supernatural. And a lot of that's in his mind from the. Yes. And I, I'm glad you say that. Cause it's, uh, this is blasphemy what I'm about to say, but I actually prefer the movie over the book. I do too. I'm glad my brother's not here. Cause he does not agree with me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but maybe it has something to do with that. Right. Cause like you don't really know you, you're kind of guessing the entire time until the, uh, uh, the scene where he's put into the, Right. The, freezer, the only time right? that he's that something actually is helping him at all. Right. And I, and I think like Kubrick has has even said himself that he's like, yes, the, there are supernatural forces at work. It's not just all in their heads. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's why the movie does work so well for me is because you really are just watching this family unit kind of come unglued over over addiction and isolation, mm -hmm. uh, which is something I think uh, a lot of people can understand and, and, and connect with, you know? Yeah. But yeah, that's great. And I agree. It's uh, one of the, I think one of the few times that I actually like the, uh, the movie version, the movie the book. another one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think that uh, that's a, a bona fide, perfect movie. Yeah. Jaws is one of those movies too. That's so fun to watch because like by the time that you you're going to see it, you already know what it is. And mm -hmm. so you already have this idea of what the movie is and then it surprises you Cause like you, you're just thinking of the universal ride. You're thinking of the shark, <laughs> right. shark, the shark. But then when you see it, it's like, 
oh, the shark is totally like, yeah, it's, it's all really about. the three guys. Yeah. That's yeah, why I always hate the idea of remake it. Cause I assume it's really just going to be like a uh, lot more shark stuff, which I don't, you yes. know, you're, you're not going to get, you're not going to get actors that are the same as those three guys. No. And, and old Spielberg says that himself. He says, if I were to make jaws today, I would use all CGI. I would ruin it. You know? Yeah. yeah really cool. Cool. Uh, accident with that movie that that shark didn't work yeah i live near where it was shot uh, oh really do you yeah yeah oh cool so of course you've been to the locations i haven't uh, which is very everyone thinks is crazy but ah. i'll have people on the show who are coming i'm like oh yeah i live by that and they're like oh so you've been there i'm like no like, see oh. i've been to the texas chainsaw massacre locations oh really so you, yeah you owe yourself that it, it it is a miracle or it's a magical experience to have yeah who's yeah. the uh, the the guy drives the truck in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, <laughs> uh, the actor that the, yeah, the yeah. semi truck. Yeah. Oh, I just was reading something about him recently. Did he pass a, away recently? No, he's still alive. He's a really good guy. Was <laughs> shitty thing for me to say. <laughs> uh, but what was cool is um, when I was going to Fright Mare in Texas, mm-hmm. he, he was telling me Dallas doesn't have the doesn't have a good barbecue. Austin does. And so he brought me barbecue from Austin. He lives in Austin. So he brought me yeah. barbecue to, to the to the convention. I was like, how cool is this? Someone from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is bringing me barbecue. Yeah, you got your cred for a, for a <laughs> lifetime there. Yeah. That's pretty that's pretty cool. And I would agree with them. I think uh, I'm not a Texan. Uh, I was not born here, but I think I've been here long enough to, I, I think, say, I, I think Austin has maybe the best barbecue in the state. As far as the big cities are concerned, I'm sure there's... A couple right, other small ones local, that probably yeah. are uh, unbelievably special. I mean, Lockhart, which is just south of Austin, uh, they have some pretty stellar barbecue uh, uh, worth the plane ticket. If anybody's listening outside of the state lines, Troy must have been hearing us talk about The Shining because uh, he logged on. He was summoned. What's up, oh, Troy? Like, what's going on? How's everybody doing? How are you? We're doing, doing great. Yeah, that's what yeah. We just talked that that we actually like the the film version better than the movie, but. I said, good thing Troy's not. The film version better than the book? Mm-hmm. Of The Shining. All right. Yeah. All right. Good night, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs> Adios. <laughs> the book is great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. And like, you know, the like, like I said earlier, it's like as somebody who writes this stuff, I it like what Stephen King is able to do with uh, working supernatural elements into a plot and into like, you know, stories and pages. I mean, that just like blows my mind to, to how good he is at that. You know, and a so, lot of stuff that you would think is ridiculous, just like the notion, like a, you know, a haunted car, a haunted car. Oh, yeah, story, right. Christine, right? right? You know, that yeah. sounds really stupid, but you know, it totally yeah, very dumb. And, and yeah, how do you, that's that tightrope. It's like, how do you, how do you keep it consistent mm-hmm. with the reality, which is not, you need to have a reality, like a real, uh, avenue and conduit for uh, people to come into, but then that has to be balanced with how crazy your concept is. And yeah, like Christine is fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know? same thing. Pet cemetery. There's yes. yeah, well, there's all um, kinds of things like that. Yeah. Uh, I just uh, I've been listening to a lot uh, the last year when I'm walking. I listen to the audiobooks. Um, I'm not kidding. Like um, dead zone, dead uh, zone. Really, oh, the premise yeah, of dead zone is a, is a kid falls on his head, 
It's like it's like an <laughs> like kind of like a Three Stooges kind of thing. Like a, I was gonna say the like, Flintstones or something. Yeah, like right. a dumb guy falls on head, gets smart. He falls on his head and gets yeah. powers, and like that's like a really dumb premise. But it's an it's actually it might be my favorite uh, King book. Dude, and that movie's pretty dope. Do you guys like that movie, the, the Cronenberg movie? Yeah. yeah, it's one of the few like Stephen King movies that like. Yeah, especially you know. the older ones. A lot of uh, I think a lot from that era weren't necessarily that great, but that that one. Sure. I love it. I, and I'm like a Cronenberg, you know, ride or die fan. I, I just, I, I think I could watch anything he makes, but I, you know, as far as consuming Stephen King movies, that, that one just is right up there with, with all the other ones. Yeah. So um, uh, as, as far as books, um, what are some of your four favorite horror books? And wh- wh- is that, well, what got you into, you know, creating movies? Was it the movies or the books or, uh, what got me into making movies was the theater. Uh, I started off wanting to be an actor and um, I was a little kid and it was a, it was a horror play, which is very rare to begin with. And it was a horror play that was playing in uh, nowhere, Iowa, which is even more rare. And it was this play called Oh Haunting We Will Go. Mm-hmm. And my sibling, I have four older siblings and a couple of them were in it. And I remember just thinking it was like the epitome of cool and oh, just awesome. being being so moved by this horror play and wanting to then like, that's what I wanted to do because I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't good in school. Um, but I loved, you know, storytelling. And so I immediately got into that, but as a kid, uh, in Iowa, there's not a lot of opportunities to act. And so I just picked up the video camera and started making stuff, uh, as an excuse to act. And then years later found out that, oh, what I've been doing is just kind of practicing the craft of filmmaking and realized that that's more what I wanted to do. You know, and like I said, I still act because I, 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 lo- I love that craft, but um, doing those short films and those little projects as a kid kind of, you know, cued me up to be uh, making more serious film projects. Um, and as far as books, you know, I, I really have not read a lot of uh, fiction literature, but like that, my, my book diet is mostly nonfiction. Um, I don't know why it, it's, I'm not like much of a, I was a terrible student. I, I didn't really read for pleasure until I was out of school. Um, but for some reason it's like presidential biographies and, uh, like, you know, kind of like academic books are what kind of keep my attention and screenwriting books. But, um, uh, you know, I had this collection, I can't think of what the name of the series was, but it was this collection of books for kids where like they, they reissued all of the classics and it was this thing where they had like big font, big writing, and then a, a drawing every other page to kind of keep you interested as a kid. And I my remember mom, those. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were like hardbound, kind of like yay big. Yep. And my Some mom. Of the illustrations were great. I remember those. Yeah, like like classic illustration style. Yep, yep. And it was actually this uh, version of Frankenstein that really stuck with me as oh, a kid. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's what kind of woke, because like uh, my dad showed me the movie, which is obviously very different from the book. Yeah. And this book that I read was, a, you know, a bridge, truncated version of it. But it, it did kind of in, uh, introduce me to this idea of Frankenstein himself is more the focus of the story which then like cued me up to really appreciate uh, like the Coppola, Dracula and Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein when those like really 
kind of classic romantic era depictions of these stories were in vogue in the 90s. That, and I was a kid at the time that really like, uh, like made those movies a lot more special to me than just an excuse to see cool effects. You know, I could start to see character at a, at a, at a younger age, I think, which, you know, and then set me up for uh, hopefully effective filmmaking, I think, because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big character you know, believer in character over plot and character over spectacle, you know, you got to have those other things, but if, if you don't have the character, I oh, think I it, it's all just sort of 2d kind of flat. Yeah. Uh, Troy, we were talking earlier about uh, the hammer Frankensteins and I'm not, neither of us have seen a lot of them. Oh. And uh, are, is the, is the doctor like a bigger part of those way bigger? Yeah. Um, Cause uh, Cushing, he plays Dr. Frankenstein. And in, even in the ones, cause they managed to like have a whole series where you follow um, Dr. Frankenstein, like even right. the monsters more secondary in, in the, uh, in the hammer ones. And like, I mean, Lee's great as the creature in the first one, uh, mm-hmm. the horror of Frankenstein, I think it's called, mm-hmm. um, but the rest of them, it's all about Cushing. And, and one of them is great because it's Cushing and he's in an asylum because, you know, he's telling everybody, ah. oh, yeah, I brought the dead to life. Don't worry about that. And they're like, OK, buddy. Sure, you did. And yeah. uh, so I think there's like six or seven of them. And um, they're all worth watching. I mean, some of them are better than others, but uh, but Cushing's sure. just so great as the character. Yeah, I, well, I've only seen a few Hammer films and like what, you know, whenever I see the retrospectives on them or like whenever they bring them up in horror docs and stuff, it's, oh, yeah. like, it's clear that I'm missing out on a pretty big. I'm uh, surprised they don't have ecosystem. like a streaming site. You, you would think that like That's Hammer would have a big enough library that they could, you know, yeah, you're right. that stuff out. You're totally right. That, that, that could mm. easily be something. I, I imagine there's probably some on Shudder, right? Yeah, every yeah, now wonder, and then you can I'm find them on there. I'm thinking they might there. be on Tubi too, but I'm not positive. Yeah, yeah, I think a few of them are. I think, uh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, like all, all the ones you know, if you can find any of the ones with Cushing and Lee together, they're all just wonderful. But the yeah. um, the ones with uh, with Cushing as as Doctor Frankenstein, the whole run's really, really good. Yeah, I, I definitely need to check them out because yeah, I, I was telling old neil here that i um, i'm writing kind of a frankenstein thing like technology technology frankenstein type thing and i'm trying to like inundate my media diet with frankenstein and like uh uh you know cronenbergy kind of fly video drone stuff nice yeah another good uh frankenstein to check out is um oh uh especially since you were talking about a book with the illustrations to match if you can find like the uh bernie wrightson uh illustrated frankenstein it's amazing cool he does these pen and inks like there's probably one every 20 pages or so in the book and uh so it's uh it's just so beautiful to see cool yeah yeah but probably a lot of attention then if, if oh, it, yeah. it, has to, it has to encapsulate the, the yeah, 20 it's, it's a, so much detail to uh, yeah. Troy bought that for me when I was a kid. Troy's my older brother. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, where can people watch Pizzagate Massacre? Uh, it's available on all the digital streaming platforms like, you know, Amazon, uh, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube. Uh, and like, fortunately, it's, it's like, it's uh, affordable. It's not, you know, 
I'm not asking a lot for it. I think it's like $4.99 for a rental and $9.99 for a purchase. Um, so that's good. And, uh, you know, there may be some physical media made, uh, in the near future. We're sort of, uh, sort of like seeing how it, or I'm seeing how it does because I will probably have to foot that bill because that's the nature of independent filmmaking is you're kind of like paying for a lot of this stuff. And at this point I'm just like flush out of cash. And as I told you, I had a pretty bleak, uh, moment with the movies. So I, I kind of erased any notion of, of making DVDs or Blu-rays or anything like that, because I just didn't think anybody wanted it. But now that it's had this really quick sort of acceptance and it seems to be doing really well now that it's available, uh, maybe when I get that first check in the mail or that first uh, vision of, of just how many people watched it, uh, then that might motivate me to pony up the cash to make some physical media uh, and have some like behind the scenes stuff. There's not a lot that we cut out of the, what you see. Um, but uh, you know, there's uh, uh, commentaries that would be very uh, uh, fun. Yeah, to do, I'm a I big think. fan of commentary tracks oh. and unfortunately uh, not too many releases do commentaries anymore. And uh, that's, no. a big, that's a big, uh, for me, if, if I'm going to buy something, uh, that motivates me because I enjoy the commentary. Oh, yeah. You want a couple of bonus things, and that's always a highlight. Yeah, and it's, it's like I don't, I don't know the bandwidth or, or the, the like storage space that these um, streaming platforms have, but it seems like it would be a fairly easy thing to tack on to these yeah. We had movies. a guest once who mentioned that uh, their movie had uh, a commentary track on the streaming, and I thought that was really interesting, and I was hoping like mm. more would do that. Yeah, that would be a nice thing because then, then I think you'd be more apt to like buy it, you know, something right. like that. Yeah, right. If you get more, because I, I think yeah. that is something that people did justify their spend with is that, yeah, you get the commentary, you get the behind the scenes. Uh, uh, Shyamalan always did this really cool thing with his DVDs where he would like always include a, uh, a short film that he did as a kid that was sort of the nucleus of, of the thing that you're seeing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's that was great to see. Yeah, it's awesome. Like, who who the hell does that? And and it's obviously just a product of him being a young filmmaker that he actually has that material to share. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, if uh, uh, if Kubrick w- were making short films as a kid, th- those would be on his DVDs. But you know, it just wasn't as available available yeah. then. But and I've had a lot. We've had a lot of guests on the show who said, like, um, you know, who didn't go to film school, independent filmmakers, and a lot of them said, like. The, you know, listening to the commentary tracks and some of the specials was like a big part of how they learned to make movies. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, uh, as kind of wrote as it is, that's sort of my story as well. You know, I, I tried to go to film school. I gave them my money. I gave them my attention and, uh, I just had a really, you know, kind of toxic professor that just, uh, beat me up all along the way. And I finally dropped out and said, fuck it. I'm going to make my own movie. And, save my tuition and make a movie and um you know i'm better for it it, it allowed me to then move and, and move to austin without any real debt to speak of which uh, a lot of my yeah, friends who finished <laughs> yeah. out film school or went to grad school i mean they're fucked with, with the uh with the debt that they face uh you know s- some some people got use out of it and good for them but uh i i <laughs> I'm firmly in that camp that you don't need film school and that uh, it's, you know, it's about kind of trial and error and failing hard 
you know, yeah, fail also, and, and like, get used to failing. You mentioned the film community in Austin. There's a film community, you know, some are bigger than others, but wherever you are, there's probably some type of film community. And uh, if you, I, I know a lot of people too, just being on sets on films, uh, you know, it helped them, you know, make their first movie. Yeah. Look, if there, if there's a, if there's a film scene in Des Moines, Iowa, or Cedar Rapids, Iowa, then there's a film scene near you, right. you know, and uh, it really is about who, you know, uh, and, and building those relationships. And I'm talking about who, you know, in like the positive way where it's like, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to make the movie had I not done low budget music videos for 10 years and gotten to know all of these technicians who would then become the big bubble that was about to burst in Austin and become the who's who, you know, we shot this movie right before all of these people blew up and, and like graduated beyond me. Um, so like getting to know those people and investing in those uh, communities uh, is really what it's all about. It, it trumps uh, uh, some great idea that you have, you know, like you, you've got this idea of like, oh, if I could just make this movie, if I could just write this script, it's, it's going to be great. I'm telling you, it's like, that doesn't matter. It's who makes the movie that matters, in my opinion. If I didn't have the, the, the grip team that I had on this movie, it, it, the movie would have fallen apart. You know, it's, it's the whole thing is birthed on day one of the shoot, not when you come up with the idea or not when you mint the final draft of the script. It's all about who's making it and who's like uh, pulling those levers for you. Now, I'll take credit for... Uh, you know, assembling that crew and knowing who was going to work well together. Uh, but that's hard earned time on set and seeing who fucks you and who doesn't. And like uh, seeing who, who can withstand a 12 hour shoot um, as long as you feed them well and not always throw pizza at them. You know, it's, it's that balancing act, right? Yeah. yeah. Although yeah. you would expect some pizza on pizza gate massacre. I guess there was, oh, yeah. there was, <laughs> There was, there was some clutch moments of pizza. Uh, our I armor. think you have to have barbecue every now and then. To keep I think in Austin, yeah. Although if you live in Austin, you might be sick of barbecue. I don't know. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Pizza I, might be a treat then. I can't remember if we had barbecue. Our, our food was outstanding. And, and I will give all that credit to one of our producers and my uh, partner, my roommate who's in the other room, uh, Jocelyn. She, she was uh, in charge of the craft services and the, and the food. And it was like out of this world. Good. Like no, 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 no joke. And, but she's a, she's almost a vegetarian. So I don't know if we had barbecue. That's a good question. We did have pizza though. Yeah. We did have pizza. So I just want to know uh, who did the, the new, the, the new uh, poster. Cause it's, it, I really like it. It's very cool. Cause sometimes I see movies, they'll be on the festival and I think they'll have great poster art. And then the, distributor puts out very like generic stuff and i think it's a downgrade but i actually really like the pizza game i think it's so good i was so excited when i first saw that i I knew that we had something special in our hand because again going through this gauntlet of making the movie and like seeing what moves things marketing wise you quickly become very appreciative of key art or your poster Mm -hmm. uh it is everything and uh we had a great poster made by a local artist, uh, Tim Doyle. He, he did posters for Mondo, and uh, I'm really a fan of our original poster. But we had to make a new one when we changed the title. And uh, the producer that found our movie, Aaron, uh, he suggested this guy who did posters for him named Mark Schoenbach. 
Um, really cool guy. He got the movie immediately. He was great to correspond with. Uh, um, and what he came up with was outstanding. And, and it's like every review of the movie since then has always like one way or another mentioned that poster. And in, in our like business that we work in it, with the streaming and, and digital video, like seeing that poster s- fly by on your carousel on whatever streaming service you're watching yeah, is paramount. Catching. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's got to stop people. And that's sort of what went into the calculus of giving the movie this really schlocky, colorful title was like, we got to stop people when they're just flying past us because we're not going to be featured on the top. You know, we're not going to be um, this movie that is just forced down your throat. It's, it has to be kind of discovered and it's a word of mouth type of movie. Um, glad you like that poster. Not surprised that you like the poster. It's, it's, no, it's, it's incredible. It really is great. Yeah. I love it. Outstanding. Yeah. yeah. I'll hopefully it's a hand painted. It looks like, uh, yeah. Painted. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all, you know, like it's, it's all, it's all his, his work. And it's a weird thing that you learn too, that, uh, those posters, although they are, they, uh, evoke the most kind of, uh, excited responses, I'm told that they don't actually produce the most results. And, and I'm told that when you use actual photographs of. Yeah, that's what I was, what I was kind of referring to, because sometimes I'll see cool um, painted stuff on the festivals. And then when they come, I won't name names, but certain places they'll put out the movie. And they're almost very, they're all kind of generic. They have uh, pe- they'll have pictures that have nothing to do with the movie, like people that aren't in it. And, yeah. and it's almost all, it's always blue and orange. And I don't know. It's uh, yeah. But it, there's something to it for some reason. Yeah. And, and the, the, the math bears out, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet, which is a very important thing to remember as anybody making like consumable uh, artwork is like, never forget just how many people are on the planet right now. And the numbers bear out that when you have those types of posters for some weird reason, I don't know if it makes people think again, it's that like balancing act of how do you convince your audience member into believing that what you're showing them is a real movie and not just like something that someone kicked out on the weekend, maybe something in those types of posters where they use just like kind of basic photos from the movie, maybe something about that, like creates that magic trick in the mind, yeah. you know, and, and, and is part of that relationship and that dance with the audience. I don't know. We have one, we have a poster that's like that, where it's, it's like a photograph of Tynus the actor Duncan and it's a shot from the, it's pulled right from the movie. And then they, they grab other elements from the movie and glom it on behind him and make this kind of pastiche of like images. And from kind of an objective point of view, you could argue that, well, this, this other one by Mark Schoenbach or this other one by Tim Doyle is objectively better, but for some reason, this one's performing more. I don't know what I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a quicker conduit to the character at the center of the movie. I don't know, but they do well. And when we put that poster out, people responded to it as well. The 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 one that has the actual photo. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if you know about merchandise stuff, but like that would look a cool. That would make a cool shirt too, dude. If, yeah, I've got this. Well, I don't. I'd have to go dig it out, but uh, the uh, sister of the cinematographer of our movie, uh, her name is uh, Shawnee McGovney, and um, she's a graphic uh, uh, graphic designer, uh, artist, studio artist, and she did this uh, screen prints 
uh, screen print poster that she made. That's awesome. And it has that kind of uh, shepherd's fairy vibe to it, where it's very like contrasty white and black. And it's of uh, a lizard person oh, nice. with, with the title and the font and everything. And it's like perfect for a t-shirt. She made a handful of t-shirts for the crew. Uh, so again, like if the movie does well, and if there is uh, a bona fide audience for it, and I can kick out some merchandise, like we got some cool stuff uh, loaded up if people will show up for it right, because right. I just don't have the money to burn on what no, if, no, at I, this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like we want to make a vinyl of the soundtrack, uh, Those are, all that you know, stuff. Very uh, popular right now. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie's perfect for it. It's, it's every, like you can make toys, you can make action figures of these characters. There's a, a friend of mine who makes um, a side scroller video game who offered to make a video game. Oh, nice. Of, of Pizzagate where it's like, like that old uh, uh, NES version of Ninja Turtles where yeah. you're, you're the top down view of the van, you know, you could have Duncan in his van and then you could go into the 2D side scroller for some of the action stuff. Right. You know, it's that a perfect cool. movie to, to build out all of the ancillary uh, yeah. items. Yeah. Uh, where can people follow you in the film to see, to see what's up? All over uh, social media. I love uh, hearing from people and, and, and talking to people as much as I have time for. Um, but yeah, I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, recently started a TikTok channel. Uh, I actually did too. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. I get it. It's fun. Yeah, people kept telling me and I was like, well, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any cats currently. I don't dance, but I, I guess you could put up <laughs> other things and then people watch it. Yeah. Yeah, I just do short kind of get in and out little like uh, goofy shit. You know, I, I don't want to overstay my welcome because I, I don't know how relevant I am anymore. I'm, I'm approaching the, the age where you really got to start to be tricky about how you can kind of stay relevant on these platforms. Yeah. But um, you're not in the key demo. <laughs> no, no. But uh, happy to not. have them as an audience. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, it's, you know, John Valley on, on all those social media platforms. Um, you know, they're connected to our website, which is the pizzagatemassacre.com. Uh, my personal website is johnvalleyworks.com. And it's got some of my acting stuff. It's got some of my uh, cooler, more visually stimulating music videos. Um, check those out. I've not, I've not watched the music videos. Are, is it your music or you just do, did you just direct the, the videos? Some of them are. I was in a band for a couple of years. This cool uh, kind of classic rock band. Um, so I have some that are videos for that, but uh, mostly they're uh, other bands. Um, yeah. And there are all these like really low budget affairs where we're trying to punch above our weight class. And so you get this really cool, gritty, uh, you know, very like you can see it's, it. There's no way you can design this or there's no way that you can really set out to achieve it. But I think looking back now and even with Pizzagate Massacre, it's it's material that you can watch and you see the filmmaking going on in a good way. You see the like work that's being put forth by the the crew and you see the like the hands-on approach and kind of how like tactile it all is. And I think that's uh, something that people so readily try to escape with their work. They they try to escape that human element and and the making and the artifice, but I think that that's like for my money that's that's what I like to see is I I don't I don't like this kind of glossy sort of perfectly produced Netflix patina or, or Marvel patina. You know, I want to see that there's like a, that there's people moving a camera around and that there's uh, 
actors kind of in the wings waiting, you know, for their, for their scene, you know, I don't know why that is, but maybe it's from the theater and just kind of, you know, when you go to see theater, that, that is part of the illusion is you see the ropes and you see the edges of the makeup, but there's something about that, that like is intrinsic to the experience Mm -hmm. that I think is, it's, I get why, but I think it's foolish to so like try to escape that or abandon that or hide that, you know? I think that's sometimes why the, like the, um, the movie versions of like musicals are always kind of weird. Like I, I last week yeah. I saw, um, West side story uh-huh. and like, it's, it's weird because like, if you're watching a play and it's guys that, that are supposed to be, you know, gang members and they start dancing, singing, you're, you know, you're watching a place. So it's fine. But when you're watching a movie, it comes off very odd. It's like, yeah. I, I love the music and stuff, but it's, you know, you're watching an actual movie and they're in a real street. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start ballet dancing and it's like, well, this is, you know, I just go with it, but I, it, it's still very just odd. Yeah. And that, that movie's weird because like when you look at it at its individual components, everyone is doing a really good job. I, I adore West Side Story. It's like one of my favorite uh, musicals. It's one of my yeah, favorite movies. And I love Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And, but when you watch the movie, there was just something kind of boring about it. Yeah. But I, like, I, I didn't, uh, I, I would rather watch the original one, honestly. Right. And yeah. I think it has something to do with the, the, the way that that the original was rendered in so far as like, here you have in 2021, you have a lightweight camera and you have all of this money and like, you know, techno jibs and techno crane stuff and like all of this like motion control and everything is like at Steven Spielberg's disposal. Whereas even though West Side Story was kind of a big budget in 1961, it was a big budget for the time. The technology was only so advanced that you still had to be carting around a, a giant ass hunk of metal of a camera on a big ass dolly. And, and you're beholden to those physics for better or worse. And so it will then like give off that sense of like, there's people behind this, there's somebody touching this. And there's like, these are breathing people moving around. Whereas when you see the new one, it, it's like, if you blur your eyes or take your glasses off, you know, like you, you might as well be watching some CGI thing. Mm-hmm. It's just too clean and too like produced. Yeah. You know? definitely. And yeah. And it, it even though it's not, well, it is kind of long. It's two and a half hours, but it felt very long while I was watching. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I checked, literally checked my watch during it and, and bummed me the hell out. Yeah. And I had to do that. I, I usually go see three movies every Friday with my MC thing. And all three movies happen to be two and a half hours. And that was the only one that really felt long. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. And it's, but it, it bums me out because everybody did great. The singing was great. Yeah. It was where I kind of kept, especially um, the non. I when it was the musical parts, it was fun. But a lot of the stuff in between, I just kind of was hoping, oh, let's get to another song. Same, <laughs> yeah, same, same. I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like they. You know, you hear about these stories at the original one where they were literally like getting in there with concrete saws and cutting down three feet into a street. So they could drop the camera down for like that particular angle on a New York street. It's like, they're not doing that shit with the new one. They're probably <laughs> building right. those sets or CGIing it, you know? Yeah. And there's something about that. I think that, I mean, the whole industry, the, the vast, the, the filmmaking is very young, relatively speaking, but the vast majority of the craft was forged with those types of constraints. And now we're, we're, we're like moving into this era where it's like with, you know, I, I'm all about shooting movies on iPhones, 
But there's something about being able to put your camera in any angle and fly it around that is like abandoning something, I think, it, that is very integral to the, to the medium itself that we're not aware of. You know, we're always just trying to push, push, push. And, and what's the most like cutting edge imagery? Whereas like, I think we're, we've maybe jumped the shark, you know, and, and we should not forget about uh, what came before. And that was like a big, big choice that we made with Pizzagate was like, we used a big ass tripod and we had a giant zoom lens and everything. So we had that kind of like, okay. And so then you got to make those angles count because it just took 15 minutes to move this hunk of metal over to this side of the room. So you got to really make those angles count. And then all of a sudden you start calculating differently. Any filmmaker who's shot digitally, who gets the opportunity to shoot film knows that you shoot it differently when you can hear the film and when you're holding the, the cold metal of like a Bolex 16 millimeter or something, it, it changes the way that you're approaching the material. Yeah, and you also you don't know? want to waste the film. No, or no. Yeah. So like everybody, you, is, you know, the only problem, you know, you have to edit it, but you, you're not going to, I mean, you might yeah. run out of space, but you just get more space, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a, uh, it's like a, you're flying too close to the sun thing with, with these, all the, this digital revolution, you know? So we tried to, although we shot this digitally, we tried to adopt older style of shooting and, and uh, we adopt this older heavy technology and, and gear so that the movie would kind of feel that way. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the cat, the cats, we won't even, you know, mention it. Yeah. <laughs> But I do want to see the the cat butthole version if they I know. It, I know. I didn't watch that. I, I uh, my buddy Rob Merritt. Uh, he's a writer, filmmaker, actor guy in Iowa, and he's he's kind of whenever uh, musicals come out, he's always the first one to see it. So I wait to see what his review is, and he just went on a tear about cats. It's one of the few. Mu- I actually I I went to see, but I I actually walked out because I couldn't take it. It's one of the few times. Uh, <laughs> I just like, yeah, oh, I'm not a huge fan of the play itself, so I probably would have a real tough time with the movie. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't want to lose cred with the so. horror people, but I am a fan of musicals. So. Oh, I love. I them. think we all are. Yeah, all right, fair enough. I love fair musicals. Yeah. When you're talking about a uh, horror, um, uh, the first musical I went to was a uh, Little Shop of Horrors when I was in yeah. California, and that was so fun. That's uh, my favorite uh, movie musical. For yeah, sure. That Frank Oz movie is incredible. Yeah, this oh, was the play, the, the play version. Yeah. It was really cool. Dom Deller just played the, uh, the uh, Mr. Mushnick. Oh, so you got, okay. So you, you saw like a, a big production of it. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And then I saw yeah. a real small version of, Bo- not, not a bit in Boston though, of um, Silence the Musical. And if you ever get a chance to see it, it's great. It's a musical based on Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I, I think I would love that. Oh, uh, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, it's very That's funny, awesome. but it's played super straight, which makes it funnier to me. So. I think there's a musical of The Fly too that Cronenberg oh, was really? maybe going to direct at one point. Um, maybe it's an opera. I'm not sure, hmm. but I know I saw an interview with him where he was talking about that, like. Oh, either way, was, though, that would be worth seeing. I think. Yeah, I know yeah. they had the reanimator one, which I, I never got a chance. To yeah, see I heard about that. Out. Yes, that would be super cool to see. Yeah, but they don't, you know, in, they don't put them out. Oh, sorry. No, you're good. You're good. No, but back in the day, um, there was a uh, it was actually on Broadway for like three days before they 
they, they gave it the boot was um, Shoggoth on the roof, which was kind of like Fiddler on the roof. <laughs> and, uh, cool. you know, just a bunch of Lovecraft characters and stuff. <laughs> Oh, that's and I think Chris Sarandon was uh, was in it. He was oh, really? like, I would love to get like a copy of that. It probably doesn't exist anywhere. Yeah. But. Well, but no, that's the thing is that we're just like I, I've done enough theater to know that, like, I guarantee you that exists. And it was it's probably shot really it. well. Oh, but then man. they just take it and they put it in a vault. You know, oh. like when I was so I went to the University of Iowa for a couple of years and was in that theater department there. And it's a very like well-renowned theater department for good reason. A lot of really great people that work there. Um, and they would shoot all of the main stage plays and they would have wow. like four or five cameras going sometimes and all different angles and operators. But then they would immediately take that and put it in a vault. And I guess the only people who could see it were uh, grad students and just oh. for like research purposes, you can't like publicize it. Okay. And it must be something like some, a principle or philosophy within the theater community, you know, which yeah. I, I get, I get on its surface, but as we were saying earlier, Neil, it's like, I don't know if the, the theater or the stage is like yeah. in the best position to be withholding yeah. great right. material. Oh, yeah, right. Like you the know? Indiana Jones, when they put the ark just in this big warehouse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Warehouse of all these great uh, performances. They're just exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's well, probably the place out there. to break in some somewhere. Find out where this is. <laughs> yeah, there's probably some through miles full of stuff. Yeah. Yes. There, there's you your know. sequel, the Pizzagate Massacre. They break in and, and watch all yeah. these. Plays. Bust out all the uh, the Broadway shows that are being held <laughs> under the radar. <laughs> That's definitely going to be lower and nail on a wire or something. <laughs> <laughs> He's digging through just miles of like strange, <laughs> trying things. to find silence the musical. Yes. Yep. Be like it's in here somewhere. I know it. (laughs) Too many productions of cats in the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll stick out the butthole. (laughs) Yeah, speed through those. Every every now and then they'll put them out. Like you know, for some reason they think Jesus Christ Superstar is always. Yeah, they always put out those Broadway versions. And there's there's a Sweeney Todd too. You can find it. Yep. 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 But I saw a really cool Sweeney Todd, um, and it was a really small uh, production, but it was it was really fun. And they didn't have a huge set; they just used like the whole theater itself and walked around like it was the city. And it was. It was oh, I would love to fun. see that. I that's love that show. Ass. Yeah, yeah me so too. much. I think that's my single favorite musical. I think Sweeney Todd is. It's so good, it. and yeah. it's so simple. You know, when, oh, you, yeah. when you break it down to the plot movements, it's it's just like. Yep simple but rock solid you know it's just every all the characters make sense they're they're all justified and like their heightened abilities uh like it all works you know it doesn't Mm -hmm. it it is a crazy concept again like speaking of like crazy concepts and how do you (laughs) balance that in reality it's a pretty crazy concept but it works i love it and i I like tim burton's movie too i thought it was pretty cool yeah yeah that's one that really surprised me yeah Yeah. when when i was at fright fest we we went to fleet street and i had i had a meat pie on fleet street i was very (laughs) that's the best (laughs) cool that's cool now there was also a barber there but uh, i i didn't (laughs) see my problem is i break into song nail i think if i went (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the people work their play all oh, this again yeah uh, yeah let's get out get the hell out yeah, of here worst spy in london yeah never heard that one buddy Keep <laughs> <walking>. <laughs> all right well this has been very fun 
Yeah, dude. Yeah, this yeah. is cool. I appreciate you having me on and everything. This is this is fun stuff, and I'm just I'm glad that uh, uh, I assume I assume the movie was hopefully not a major waste of time for you. Oh no, I no, enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I like to tell people it's like it's not Citizen Kane. You know, we didn't <laughs> we didn't set out to to like you know uh, eviscerate the the world of film, but like. Uh, it's a fun movie. I think again, you can like it, whether whatever side of the aisle you find yourself on. And um, yeah, you know, it's I'm just glad people are liking it. You know, it's a real, um, you, it's a real topic, and so it's both fun, but then it also you know deals in something serious, which I like. I like the contrast. Yeah, there's cool. also about about I think thirty or forty minutes in where it is. It's like a fun movie, but then uh, something happens where it's like. You can you can't backtrack now, it, you know. Uh, it's almost like it's oh, true. this is only going forward. This yeah. is a you know more serious movie than than yeah. I was expecting. Yeah, it t- it takes a pretty big turn uh, again, just because like hopefully like you know I think the things like PizzaGate, QAnon, Trump, uh, Alex Jones, they're funny until they're not. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's absolutely. how. The, yeah, that's that's you do that well with the movie, and I think yep. if it was all just fun without any you know seriousness it would be a weird movie because you know it's about something so uh so yeah. dangerous yeah imagine how mad those festivals would have been if i submitted that version <laughs> oh no <laughs> the festivals are coming to get me <laughs> all right well yeah. we will, i wish you do this again sometime yeah, oh, i would love that come on back yeah. i'd love that guys Let's talk and, about uh, musicals yeah, maybe so I'll we'll have a, a sing-along or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hopefully be able to make a musical someday. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like I said, I'm working on something right now. And so hopefully if the uh, if fortune favors me, I'll be able to have it made and, and come back on and we can chat about that one. Sounds good. Yeah. And we'll have our sing-along. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to open a present here. Uh, we do our, you know, you can leave if you like, but you can say if you want. Uh, we do our oh, annual um, Secret Satan, where people send stuff in, and I and I pack it up, send it out to everybody. Last two years, because last year we didn't do it because of COVID. This year we did a smaller uh, version, but hopefully next year we can do it big again. But the full shebang. Here is my Secret Satan in uh, black wrapping paper, which is gets harder to find every year. Black wrapping. Paper. So I do do these random. So. so you don't know what this is. Right. I do wouldn't know what it is right now. But so I've got a without your head shirt, oh, uh, nice. which is good. Hell yeah. I'll wear that. <laughs> and then is this Friday the 13th journal. Oh, oh that's so nice. cool. That's very cool. I love those eyes. That's great. And I do know who sent this in. I usually let people, you know, take credit if they liked or not, but this was sent in by Jason Mitten. So thank you, Jason. And uh, whenever you get yours, hopefully you can post pictures or video, whatever you want, on our uh, Facebook group. And everyone else do the same. Everybody else do it. Yeah. <laughs> I know uh, Robin actually got hers and she posted hers. All right. All right. Until next time, this is Nasty Neil. This is Terrible Troy. I'm John Valley. We need a cool J- Jay's very hard. Yeah, Jay. Uh, Dr. J. Valley. Oh, Vicious oh, Valley. I like that. That works. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs>
Right. Otherwise, J, it's like jolly yeah. or I don't know. It doesn't work, but <laughs> jugular, but I've used it before for, for another J. But I like right, anyway. <laughs> this is without your say head head. Aha, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Happy, uh, uh, yes, happy holidays. Happy ho- holidays. Yeah. yeah. Everybody have a good time. Be safe. Right. And uh, Friday, which is tomorrow, Christmas Eve, I'm going to post the big Bob Archer interview. He played Krampus. I recorded earlier in the week. He played Krampus in A Christmas Horror Story. So it's very fun. Hell I yeah. dress as Camp very Krampus. Nice. So it's Krampus interviewing Krampus. <laughs> <laughs> You're like baby Krampus. Exactly. Night, <laughs> <laughs> right. hey, everybody. Good night. Later, guys. Thank you so much. You as well. Thank, Thank you. you for doing it. Mm.